Um, Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super excited about this. Uh, I, I can tell you that many of us have some experience with games in some sense, because we've taken graduate level complexity theory where you encounter some ideas around, around games or because people may have encountered game theory, but I suspect what you're talking about today is somewhat different. Um, so I, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to it. And um, uh, I think we'll just give you the floor and we may have a few dings as people trickle in, but uh, as I said, they will um, uh, catch up. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here, and I hope we can have some fun with these uh, infinite games. It's a little more whimsical topic, so uh, it's sort of meant for having a little bit of fun with it. There are computational aspects, so we'll get into that a little bit, then I'll try to mention. But okay, let's just let's just dive right in. So I hope everyone can see my slides. Um, I want to start with this etching that was made for me by a student here in Oxford. Django Pinter, and uh, it's he called it recursive chess. And you can see the black queen is about to capture the white knight, but Django's idea was that in order for that capture to be successful, the pieces themselves would have to sit down and play a game of chess, but of course not just a game of chess, a game of recursive chess. And, uh, and you can see these larger pieces in the background here. So we're already like a couple of levels down in the recursion, right? And so Django is, uh, was not a mathematician or a logician or anything, even though that's what he was learning from me. Um, and he made this etching, but he didn't know, he didn't have a specific rule set in mind for the game. And, and we realize it's not so clear what the rules of recursive chess should be. And so there's a couple of, I have like half a dozen different reasonable uh, rules for how I should play. Notice that black is playing as white in the sub game here. And, and, uh, and so, uh, so I invite you to think about recursive chess and to uh, propose rules that uh, would make sense and would be, you know, uh, lead to game theoretically interesting game and so I, I would be interested in hearing if you have any ideas about that. Okay so let's go now to the what I call the chocolatiers game which is a, an infinite game. It's got two players. The chocolatier each round it's going to last for infinitely many rounds and then the winning condition will or will not be satisfied after that after infinitely many rounds. The chocolatier serves up finitely many chocolate morsels each round. Maybe he puts two on and the next round 17 or whatever, however many he wants, finitely many. And the, the glutton selects one from amongst the chocolates available and eats it. Okay, And they accumulate. And the glutton wins if he eats all the chocolate at, by the end. Right. So, okay, so the chocolates are served and the glutton eats one, and then more chocolates are served and the glutton eats just one, and more chocolates. How can he possibly eat them all? I mean, he's getting further and further behind because he's only eating one each round, but the chocolatier is serving up finitely many, maybe a huge finite number each round, and so the glutton is getting further and further behind. Okay, but uh, nevertheless, if you make the right choices, of course, then the glutton can win. Um, and let me describe how that's possible. It's not very difficult. Um, we just imagine the serving platter as a queue. And the new chocolates go to the back of the queue, but you always eat from the front. 
So therefore, maybe the round one chocolates that are served are these three, and this is the first one eaten. And then the chocolatier puts these two chocolates down, but the glutton is still eating from the front. So he eats this one and so on. So the, the new chocolates go on the back, you eat from the front, but it's clear then that after infinitely many rounds, every single chocolate is going to be eaten. And so the glutton is going to win. Okay, good. So, um, right. What if the chocolatier can serve up infinitely many chocolates on each round? Right. Not just finally many, then the queue idea doesn't work. Because if we put the next round of chocolates at the back of the queue, then he's going to spend the whole game just eating the first round of chocolates, and he's never going to get to the second round of chocolates, and so he won't win. Um, but nevertheless, he can still win uh, if he just organizes things a little bit differently. Um, it's something like the Cantor argument. Uh, namely, okay, if we have infinitely many chocolates, let's think of them as filling in a matrix. So the first round chocolates go on the first row, the second round chocolates go on the second row, third round chocolates go on the third row, and so on. But the glutton eats the chocolates on this winding path that goes up and down these diagonals. And, uh, and this path is going to hit every single chocolate at some finite stage. And so therefore, uh, as long as the glutton eats the chocolates, and if, the, if there isn't any chocolate on a certain location at a certain point in time, uh, that's fine. You can just eat whatever chocolate you want on that round, but you should just always follow uh, this winding path in the order in which you eat the chocolates, and then the glutton will be able to eat them all. Okay. There's something about both of these strategies, actually, uh, there's some further interesting issues with this game, namely, uh, is there a memory-free strategy? Because in both of those strategies, we need to know not only what chocolates are available at each round, but we need to know the order in which they were given to us. The strategies depend on the history, not just on the current set of options. And so you can ask, is there a winning strategy for the glutton that depends only on the chocolates that are currently on offer, the set of chocolates on offer? And, uh, and that's a quite interesting question. Um, for example, if, there, if the chocolates are each, if, the, if you're allowed to repeat chocolates, if the chocolatier can serve an identical chocolate again, then the answer is going to be no, because for a trivial reason. The chocolatier can just put two chocolates down, two different chocolates, and then the glutton will eat one of them, you know, the, the, the more delicious looking one. And then the chocolatier can simply replace it. And then if the strategy is, it is only depending on the set, then the glutton is gonna eat that same one again. And so on every round, eat, eating the same one. He's never gonna eat the, you know, the, the ugly one. And so he'll lose. Okay, so there can't be a memory-free strategy in general if the chocolatier is allowed to repeat the chocolates. So let's make sure the chocolatier never repeats anything. He has to always serve a totally di different one. And, but if there's only countably many possible chocolates, in other words, if the, if the chef's kit, if he only has countable creativity, there's only countably many chocolates in principle that he could serve. Then the glutton can win with a memory-free strategy because he always eats just the lowest one on offer, the, the one that's first in the menu. 
if it's available. You know, not every chocolate is in the menu is available, but amongst the chocolates that are available, you just eat the one that appears earliest in the menu list. And then it will follow that he'll eat every single chocolate because no chocolate can survive all the way uh, to the end of the game because at some point all the all the earlier menu items will have been eaten. And so it will be the one to be eaten at that stage. And so it can't survive. Okay, but then you could ask, well, what if what if the chocolatier is uncountably creative? What if there's a chocolate type for every real number? Okay, then that argument doesn't work anymore. And in fact, you can prove that there's no memory-free strategy in that case. You know, it on an uncountable set of chocolate types, the chocolatier is serving only countably many each time at most, or even only finally many. We could ask for a memory-free strategy, but it's impossible. Um, and that's quite an interesting argument, but uh, let's leave it aside for now. Um, in fact, in the general case, even with uncountable, uncountably many chocolate types, if you assume the axiom of choice, then there's this beautiful argument showing that the glutton has a winning strategy. It's not quite memory free, but the strategy depends only on the set of chocolates on offer currently together with the taste in his mouth from the previously eaten chocolate, the most recently eaten chocolate, then you, there's a winning strategy that depends on only that information. Okay, so let's talk about Sudoku. Now, normally, Rachel, so, for the sure. for the previous argument, is it because the axiom of choice gives him essentially a real size menu? Is that why it works? Uh, no, well, the menu could be even bigger than the reels. It could be an enormous infinity. Okay. The choice is used because you should well order the chocolate types. I see. And you're going to be building this descending sequence, which is impossible in the well order. And so we can get into the argument later if you want. But it's, Got it. Okay. It's, it's not an elementary argument. In fact, it appeared in a paper of labor and... Um, Michelsky, I think, uh, in the seventies. I mean, it's a you know, it's it's a substantial argument, but I can describe it later if you're interested. Okay, so Sudoku is normally thought of as a one-player game, but I want to play two-player Sudoku. And the way two-player Sudoku works is you start from an empty board, and you take turns putting numbers onto the board. But you have to follow the Sudoku condition. You can't ever repeat any numbers on a row or a column or a subboard. And you're trying to trap the other guy. So can you create a situation where they don't have a move? You lose if there's no legal move. So the, the game isn't about making a global solution. The game is about creating a situation where the other person can't continue to play in such a way that obeys the Sudoku rule. Okay. So it's trapping them in a local violation of the Sudoku condition, not trapping them in a global violation. Okay, so, right. And, and we, I wanna change the board size. I'm gonna play infinite Sudoku in a bit, but let's just consider like really big finite boards. Maybe, it, maybe it's an even sized board. And I claim the second player as a winning strategy. And the way it works is like this. The second player can just copy the moves reflected through the center. So maybe blue goes first and then red copies reflecting the move. 
And then blue plays a two here, red copies it. And then maybe a three is copied. Four down here, red copies. And the point is that if the previous move was legal, then the reflection of that move will also be legal because any violation of a any violation that's created on the second move, the reflection of it, you know, the unreflected version of it will have been a violation already for the other guy. So if if he can keep playing, then you you can keep playing by copying him in this reflective manner. And therefore the second player is going to win because it won't ever be the second player who's trapped. It'll always be the first player. And maybe they fill up the board completely, or maybe they don't. Okay. So, uh, so the second player wins uneven boards. What about odd-sized boards? Now it doesn't work on an odd-sized board because the reflect. There's going to be a middle row, maybe. And if if you reflect to the other side of that middle row, then you would the copied reflection would violate the condition already. Odd size boards. Okay, so I claim this winning strategy now for the first player. And the strategy goes like this. You you, you put a five in the in the center. Let's just play on the regular nine by nine board or three by three by three by three. Um you put a five in the center and then you reflect the tense complement, the dual. So if blue plays a four, then you play a six. The tense complement of four is six. If, if blue plays a two, you play an eight. And so on, if blue plays a three, you play a seven. Okay, you reflect not the move itself, but the dual of it. And the point is that that reflection is gonna work. Um, uh, because if, if, if the new move created a violation of the Sudoku condition, then the unreflected dual version would have been a violation already. And so therefore the first player can keep doing this. Uh, he has to play in the very center in the beginning because that square has no reflected copy. It's sort of its own one. And so by taking that square out on the first move, then he can copy what the other guy's doing on the remainder of the game and thereby win. Okay. So now, of course, I want to play infinite Sudoku, though, because that's what I'm all about, these infinite games. So we're going to play on the integer by integer board. The subboards are going to be integer by integer boards, the integer by integer lattice. And we're going to have an integer by integer array of them, right? So we have a Z by Z array of Z by Z boards. And I want to play Sudoku on this, so it's going to take infinitely many moves. And the numbers we're going to be putting in there are any integer, okay? And the Sudoku condition is that every row should have ex every integer exactly once, and every column and every subboard should use every integer exactly once. You can't state the rule just in terms of no repeats, because on an infinite board, you might not repeat, but you haven't used every number. Those are not equivalent on an infinite set. On the finite game, if you say you don't repeat, it follows that you used every number. But on an infinite set, you can have an injective, a one-to-one -one enumeration of distinct numbers without using all the numbers. So you have to make the rules, you know, what, what it should really mean, namely that every row, column, and subboard contains every integer exactly once. That's the most natural rule. Okay, so that's how you win. Also, it's it's more natural here 
we don't want to play the previous rules where you the first way we can't play because you can always play if there's only front of the many moves there's going to be some board and row and column that's just totally empty and so there's always going to be a move to make so that version of the game isn't quite as interesting we play instead with the solver spoiler variation the solver is trying to create a full global solution and the spoiler is trying to prevent that so the solver is trying to create a whole infinite sudoku solution on the board and uh okay so the question is whether the spoiler can play in such a way that will ruin the possibility of a global solution and uh, and the answer is no the solver can win and, and the way it goes is like this um right the spoiler is not able to prevent the solver from winning First of all, the solver can ensure that every cell is filled. So for any particular cell on this infinite by infinite array, there's only finitely many numbers that have been played. And so one can just pick a totally new number, and that is always going to be a legal move to put into any particular cell. So we can, for any particular cell, if we want to put a number in there, I mean, we want to make it occupied, then there is some number that will be legal to play in there namely any totally new number that hasn't yet been played. That's never going to violate the condition. Okay. And also, for any particular row on any turn of the solver, the, the solver can make sure that the number seven appears or any, you know, any particular number. The reason is that if it hasn't already appeared, then he can just go out far enough so that the column and subboard uh, in that region is totally empty because only finitely many of them are sort of occupied at, an, at any given stage of play. And then he can put the seven out there or whatever number it is that he wants to put on that row. So for any given row in any given number, there's a legal place to put that number onto that row at least one place. And similarly with any column and also similarly with any subboard. So therefore the solver can ensure that any particular integer appears, you know, on any row, column, or subboard, and also that any cell is filled. And so if we think about these as sort of the requirements, if, if the solver achieves all those things for all the different combinations, every row and every number, then that number has to appear somewhere on that row and somewhere on a given column and somewhere on a subboard and every cell should have a number in it. Though, If he makes all those requirements and fulfills them all, then he's going to win, because that's what it means to win. And the point is that he can just now think of those requirements on a list, on a countable list. There's only countably many requirements, and he can just play so as to fulfill all the requirements. No matter what the spoiler is trying to do, he's always going to be able to fulfill any one of those requirements, and there's only countably many of them, and so he's going to win. Okay, so let's think about Wordle now. Do you guys play Wordle? Do you know what Wordle is? No? So it's a really fantastic game, actually. I highly recommend it. I play it every day. A lot of people do. I think millions of people play Wordle every day. If you just Google the name of the game, you'll find it. It's run by the New York Times. Um, it's a fantastic game. So you play a five-letter word from the standard dictionary. They have a standard dictionary. And it gives you feedback information. It's a little bit like the game of Mastermind, if you know it, but it's uh, different. A letter turns orange if it's the right letter, but in the wrong place. 
Okay. And gray means that letter is not in the word, in the target word. There's a hidden word we're trying to guess, the guess word. We're trying to guess the guess word, but we get this feedback information. So maybe the next guess is like this. So we, so far we know there's an O and an R in the guess in the true guess word, in the code word, um, uh, uh, but not in these particular places because they're both orange, right? Okay, so now we have a green R. That means that the, the true code word does have an R here. And it's got these other letters appearing somewhere in it. Oh, and there's two R's there. Okay, can someone tell me what the word is? Is it error? Error, exactly. So it has to have R's in the correct one, and it has to have an O, but not there and not here. So the O has to be here, and it's got to have an E in it. And so error is right. Okay. Uh, right. So I want to greatly enlarge the game. Let's play long wordle, where we play really long words. So there's some fixed dictionary of allowed words, and the guess words can only come from the dictionary, and the, co the code word is from the dictionary also. Um, and maybe it's not words or like whole phrases or books, sentences or something, you know, symphonies or whatever. Um, we can think of it kind of abstractly. Um, right, maybe millions of letters. I wanna think about really big scale. Yeah, there's a variation of it called um, uh, Nerdle. Let's see, do I have it? Oh yeah, how many steps does it take? Oh, I see, I'm not doing Nerdle here, okay. Nerdle is where you play with uh, arithmetic equations. You can uh, play the digits and plus times minus less than and equals and so on. And you can make these long equations and the dictionary just consists of the true equations. Uh, so that's a kind of version of Wordle with a numerical kind of dictionary. How many steps does it take to win? Say, if we have, if the words have millions of letters, then like if we're just using the standard 26 letter alphabet and we allow words of length a million, the number of sequences of that length is, you know, 26 to the million, it's enormous. I mean, it's way bigger than the age of the universe in seconds. Um, uh, you know, that's much bigger than a Googleplex and so on, or Google anyways, let's see, is it bigger than a Googleplex? Uh, I'd have to think. Um, okay, 26 to the million, right? No, it's not bigger than a Googleplex. Uh, so how many steps is it going to take to win? Maybe it's going to take a long time because there's so many different possible words that could go in there. Um, right. So this is the number of distinct words of that length. Maybe they're not all in the dictionary. Maybe some of them are. Maybe most of them are half of them or something. I don't know. Um, okay. So maybe you think it takes a long time to win. But in fact, uh, we can win very quickly. 26 guesses is always enough. Um, you can win in 26 guesses. And that's, I call that the wordle theorem. Uh, and the idea is your first guess, you can make anything for your first guess. And we're gonna ignore the orange feedback and just use the green feedback only. And the next guess, should keep all the green letters because they're totally right. And in all the other places, we're going to use a fresh letter that has not yet appeared in that place. And you might say, well, Joel, how do you know there is a word 
like that in the dictionary that has those green letters and has a fresh letter in all the other places. And the reason I know there's a word like that is because the right answer is like that. The, the correct get the correct code word has that property. And then I just keep doing it again. And so on the third guess, I keep all the greens. And in all the other places, I use a totally new letter that hasn't yet appeared in that place. And 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 how do you know, Joel, that there's a, a word like that in a dictionary? And the reason why I know that is because the right answer is like that. And so there is some word in the dictionary that has the property that I described. And so I can play any such word for my next guess. And the point is that after 26 guesses, in fact, on the 26th guess, I'm going to know exactly the word because I'm using totally new letters in each of the wrong places. And so there's, but there's only 26 letters. So therefore, on the 26th guess, I know what the letter is for every single place. And so I can get it right on the 26th guess. And that's why 26 uh, suffice. So, uh, so can you speed it up with uh, yellow information? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the claim is not that this is optimal. And I think like even in the five letter, this argument doesn't depend on the length of the words, right? So even in the five letter case, it's a proof that you never need more than 26 in principle. But it, in fact, you know, people usually win in three or four guesses, right? Or like six guesses is almost always possible. So I don't know what the optimal one is. And that's a very good question. And if I were a computer scientist, then I would want to be answering that question. But Actually, I'm I'm happy just because I'm just a mathematician and I'm thinking mainly about infinite Wordle anyways. And and so knowing that you can win Wordle with N letters in N guesses is, you know, I'm totally happy with that. But I think almost certainly you could use the yellow information effectively to cut it down. And I don't know what the optimal answer is. It depends on the dictionary, I think. Maybe you can make a devious dictionary that made it very hard. That's that's conceivable to me. Okay, the same proof works with infinite Wordle. So if you have any dictionary in an alphabet with N letters, then you can win in N. In it. it takes at most N steps. So there's, there's quite a lot of in interesting stuff here. I wrote a paper uh, and we consider the case not just with finitely many letters, but infinite alphabets also. And then it becomes quite subtle mathematically. Um, and difficult. And sometimes the play has to go transfinite. You can prove that sometimes having even omega many guesses, I mean, infinitely many guesses in a row isn't enough. You need more than that. Um, and so there's quite a bit of interesting stuff going on there when the alphabet becomes infinite also. Okay, so let's do a little bit on the logic of games. Um, let's see. Maybe, you know, I'm not going to have time to do everything here because um, Max said that you guys usually just talk for about half the time and then uh, have kind of discussions. So maybe I want to show you some of these other games. So let's go to drafts, which is the British way of saying checkers. So let's do infinite checkers, okay? Infinite drafts. So we have kings and pawns. Do you guys play checkers? I'm not, I don't know if, uh, I, I'm hoping that the rules of checkers are familiar to you. So we're gonna play <clears throat> on an infinite board. Okay, there's no edge. But maybe you have pieces already on the board and there's no standard starting configuration, just rather 
analyze the game. Like, what is it like to play from this position or from that one? That's the approach we take. And we have pawns and kings. So pawns, uh, uh, um, black pawns are always going up and white pawns are going down. And the kings can go in any direction on the diagonals, right? And there's the obligatory jumping rule. So right here, this black king can jump and can go A, B, C. But also because it's a king, it can go backwards to D and then E. But then after that, so all these red ones would disappear, but then red would win by jumping that king and going to F. So this is this game is a win for red. Uh, and um, the winning condition is you lose when you have no legal move. So it's different from chess. In chess, stalemate is a draw. But in checkers, stalemate is a win for the player that caused it. If you don't, if you can't move, maybe you can't move because you lost all your pieces. Or maybe you can't move because your pieces are locked up. And in both of those situations, you lose. Okay, so here's an interesting situation. It's black to play. This is a black pawn. And he can jump, so therefore he must jump. And he can do an iterated jump, so he must. It's obligatory. So he's going to jump A, B, C, D, E, and so on. It's infinite. Okay, so all those red pawns are going to be removed. Okay, and all of that is taking just one move. It's one move to do the iterated jump. That counts as one move. And the question is, where is the black piece after the move? And the red pieces are captured, so they're removed. The jumping piece, though, sort of went off to infinity. And it's a little bit of a, you know, so this is a question really about what should the rules be? And and to my way of thinking, the most natural rule to make for this kind of situation is that the black piece also disappears. If you make an infinite jump, then your piece is also gone. Because where would it be? It wouldn't make sense for it to be on any particular square because it's long gone from that place. So the rule, that it makes it a little bit different from finite checkers because you can lose one of your pieces on your own turn if you do one of these infinite jumps. Okay, But I think that's the most natural thing to do. Um, the jumping piece is removed for an infinite jump. Okay, so here's a here's a game, and I claim it has game value two for red, which is a way of saying that red is going to win after two moves. It's black to it's I'm sorry, it's red to play, and he's going to win in two moves because he can advance to a. That's the bait, and then black has to jump, and then red is going to capture. So the second move of red is going to be a winning move. Um, so this is a position with game value two. Um, okay, let's look at this one. This one I claim is game value three. Because red can make the bait, he can advance, black has to jump, and then red can advance again, and black has to jump, and then red is going to capture. So this is a position with game value three. So... Okay, well, what about this one? There's a black king down here, and there's this infinite diagonal going up with these offshoots, okay? Black can jump and therefore must jump. But black doesn't want to just jump on this chain forever. That's just one turn, and then he's not going to have any piece left, so he's going to lose on the next turn, right? So he rather wants to take one of the branching uh, offshoots, Okay, but if he takes this branching offshoot, he's going to end up here and he's going to lose on the next turn. And if he lands here, then he's going to lose in two more turns because it's just the same as that game value two situation. 
And if he takes this one, he's going to last three more steps and four more steps if he goes here and so on. So black, black can make any choice he wants and go to square n for any n and thereby last n more steps, but he's going to lose. So this game is quite interesting because black is going to lose infinitely many steps, but there's no particular number of steps that works as a bound because black can make it take as long as he wants but not forever. I mean, he makes the choice and then he's stuck with that choice. He's going to lose in that many steps. And that's what it means for the game value to be omega, the infinite ordinal omega. A game value of omega means black is going to lose infinitely many steps, but he can choose on his first move how long it takes. So what Davide Leonassi and I proved is that every countable ordinal arises as the game value of a position in infinite drafts. Not just omega, but we can make positions of any desired countable ordinal, omega squared plus five or whatever you want, any countable ordinal. Right. So we have a similar, okay, this is sort of a, a this is a, the tiniest fragment of the position that we used in the proof of that theorem. This is just one module and there's a whole tree of these modules stuck together. But let me show you some of the chess positions because they're interesting. And we also get these infinite game values appearing in chess. Um, okay. Similarly to checkers, we don't play infinite, we don't actually play infinite chess. It's not a game that you play in cafe. Uh, rather, you sit down in the cafe and you imagine what would it be like to play from this position or, or that one. That's what makes infinite chess interesting and infinite checkers. You don't actually play it, you analyze it as a mathematician and think about what the nature of the play that would arise. And, uh, and I think you'll see in in uh, in a bit, uh, what I mean by that. Okay, so here's a I claim a finite position with game value omega. It's only finitely many pieces, but I claim it has game value omega. And game value omega means that um, black is going to lose, but he get he can choose how long it's going to take. You know? Here it's it's black to move. White is very close to checkmate. For example, rook here is checkmate. Also, the queen here is checkmate. Yeah, so there's checkmate, there are a lot of checkmates here, but it's Black's turn, okay? And so on his first move, he's going to move his rook up like a billion miles high. The longer, the better, okay? And then what White can do is check him here. And there's only one move for Black. He's got to move his king up. And then White can check again, and there's only one move. And this is called a roller. So White is going to roll the king all the way up to the rook, you know, which was a billion miles high. And then it's checkmate when he gets there. So the number of steps it takes for the roller to work is basically the height that Black moved his rook up. And okay, it takes a kind of chess argument to prove that this is the only winning line. This is the optimal play. And therefore, Black is going to lose infinitely many steps, but on his first move, he can determine how long that takes, and that's what it means to have value omega. Okay, so here's a position with game value omega squared. It's kind of similar. So there's a bunch of white queens over here, and the, these white pawns keep going up forever and down forever. Okay, it's on the infinite border. 
And the kings are both on the right side. And there's this rook here. And now, um, black doesn't have mating material over here. It's impossible for black to mate this king. Okay. Uh, white wants to open the portcullis, the door, to let the queens in. Right? That's what white is trying to do. Okay, it's black's turn. He's got this rook. It's being attacked by the pawns. Of course, if, if this rook is taken, then he can advance the pawns and move the bishop out of the way and advance these pawns, and the door is going to open. Right? So black moves his rook as high as he can, a, a billion miles high. Right? And now what happens? Well, white just takes it, and now white is going to aim to move these pawns up one after the other until he can move this bishop out of the way and then move these pawns and open the door. Okay, but that's going to take a long time because this rook was a billion miles high, right? So it's going to take a lot of moves. Now that by itself would just be game value omega, but the point is that white's not going to have a chance to move these pawns very often because black can now check the king, which is a stupid move in the sense that it's not going to lead to checkmate, but white has to answer it because he's in check. Okay. And black can check again. Now, you can say, well, white can just run away. But no, if white always just runs away, then that would last for infinitely many moves, and that would be a draw. Infinite play is a draw. But white wants to win, not a draw. So he has to chase the rook down. Oops, he has to chase the rook down in order to stop the harassment. And then black will move away. He should move extremely far away, you know, a billion miles out. And then, and only then, white says, aha, finally, now I can move a pawn up. Okay, but then black makes another round of harassment, these checking moves. And white has to chase the rook down again, because otherwise it'll be a draw from infinite play. And, and so when white catches, then finally black moves the rook away to save it so he can do more harassing. And finally, again, white can move the pawn, okay? And so on, and this goes on for you know a long time. And each harassment round is longer and longer, and it's determined from the length that the rook moved out, which was a move that wasn't made at the very beginning, but was made at a later stage. Um, and so, okay, now I, I showed it with the rook going back just because the board didn't fit, but black should always be moving to the right, always, you should imagine that, you know, and this time a trillion miles out or Graham's number or whatever, some huge number. And then white moves upon and then so on. It's more harassing. Check, 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 check. Until white catches and then black moves very far away. And that's exactly when white can make progress on opening the door. So we see the bishops coming out and then check, 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 check. And then again, the pawn is coming up. Check, 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 check. Um, and uh, finally the door is open. Okay, one last harassment round here is what's happening. And then now the queens come in with check and then checkmate. So, okay, this is called omega squared because the height of the initial rook movement is equal to the number of rounds of subsequent harassment that will happen because each pawn movement here in the tower is coming from uh, a round of harassment. So, and if you calculate the ordinals involved, it's exactly omega squared. Um, this is the state of the art. Omega to the fourth. I know it's maybe hard to see here, but there's the bishop cannons down here. 
and these are these rook towers, and this is the throne room. And uh, we can talk about those details, but I can just show you a little bit of, this is the throne room, it's sort of zooming in. Everything is totally locked up. And if a white bishop gets on this white diagonal, it's gonna be checkmate against black. And if a black bishop gets on these blue diagonals and comes in, that's gonna be checkmate against white. And so the whole thing is set up so that the bishops uh, are going to be released at a certain point and make the checkmate. Um, and uh, I guess we can go on because I, I want to end pretty soon. Let me show you a little bit about infinite uh, 3D chess. So actually, 3D chess spans more centuries than you expect because in the 19th century, then uh, uh, Kaiseritsky's Kubikshoch uh, was played in 1851. And then uh, they have these Raumschoch chess clubs in Hamburg. They started with eight by eight by eight, but it's sort of unmanageable. And so they went to five by five by five. So you would play and you'd have five boards in front of you representing the layers and you would have to mentally assemble them into a cube. And um, and then, oh, well, I played eight by eight by three chess when I was a kid, you know, we would have, we would actually build the chess boards and uh, imagine how to play. Um, but I said many more centuries, and the reason I say this is because uh, Spock and Kirk played in the 23rd century this sort of version of 3D chess, which maybe you've seen uh, on Star Trek. Um, okay, I'm going to play infinite 3D chess, right? So it's infinite board in all three dimensions. Um, and there's interesting room for disagreement about how the pieces move. For example, a pawn. The idea is that you know, black pawns are moving this forward and white pawns are coming against it opposed and you can capture on the diagonals. So there's four diagonal capture, you know, to the orthogonal captures, right? And what about the long diagonal? A bishop can move on the diagonals in any of the axis planes. That seems clear. But what about the long diagonal of a cube? Is that a legal bishop move? And the most reasonable answer is no, because it's not a same color diagonal. The axis diagonals are same color diagonals, but the long one is, it's a, because three is an odd number, it's an opposite color diagonal. And so that wouldn't be a bishop move. That is called a, what is it called? A, uh, it's one of these fairy pieces, um, a unicorn. The unicorn move is the long diagonal move. And that's what they played in Humber. They had a unicorn piece that could do that long diagonal move. So Corey Evans, my co-author, and I proved that every counter ordinal arises as a game value in infinite 3D chess, which we can't prove for 2D infinite chess, but we can prove it for 3D chess, which is the main reason we talked about 3D chess was because we could prove this theorem in the 3D case, but we it's still open. This omega to the fourth is the best in ordinary infinite chess. Uh, and we don't know how to get much higher than that. But in 3D infinite chess, we can get every countable. So, right. So I guess that's a good place to stop maybe. And uh, right, so if you have any questions, we can talk about whatever you want. So thank you very much. Joel, that was super interesting. Thank you so much. Um, maybe I'll start us out with one. If you rotate every other chessboard by 180 degrees, then does it become the case that the long diagonals are, are monochromatic? 
Well, on the in the three D case, uh, you want you want adjacent orthogonally adjacent cells. They're not squares; they're sort of cubes, right? I mean, little unit cells that the pieces are occupied, and then you want it to go black, white, black, white, black, white, right? In the in the chessboard pattern in all three directions, right? And and if you do that, then the long diagonal is exactly going over one over one up one so it's going to change color three times so it's going to be opposite color and if you rotate 180 it doesn't that's going to preserve the colors right so okay right i don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's just a little bit of sort of geometric confusion if you think diagonals are always same color it's just not true for the long diagonal of a cube, right? And by that, I mean, it's going from the lower left bottom corner to the upper right top corner. And th that's just an opposite color uh, relation. You mentioned infinite alphabets, which are like a very scary thing in computer science <laughs> because <laughs> computer science professors uh, very much like to say that, you know, girdles and completeness theorems have uh, implications for the mathematics of any alien species, for example. But right. of course, the theorems don't work if the set of possible formulae is uncountable. Um, and I, I wonder, can you tell us what uh, what else should we be scared of when we think about <laughs> infinite sized alphabets? Well, a lot of the, there's a quite a bit of analysis of of infinitary game theory, um, where the moves in the game are are integers. For example, games on Omega, or on the natural numbers. So you and I take turns, and each move is playing a natural number. So together, we're going to build this infinite sequence of natural numbers, and maybe some of those infinite sequences are winning for you, and some of them are winning for me, maybe, and. And so depending on the complexity of the payoff set, the winning set for you, uh, it might affect whether or not, uh, you know, we have a strategy, right? And and so really the analysis of that situation, which is quite deep, actually, there's quite a lot of very uh, hard results and so on. Um, one can prove, for example, using the axiom of choice that there is a payoff set such that neither player has a winning strategy. So it violates the fundamental theorem of finite games. The fundamental theorem of finite games, which was proved by Zermelo in 1913, I think, um, says in, ev in any finite game, one of the players has a winning strategy. Uh, or else both players have drawing strategies if it's a game that allows for draws. So his focus was on chess. So he was interested in this case where you could have a draw. So in chess, it follows from his theorem that either one of the players has a winning strategy or both of them have draw or better strategies, meaning that they can force at least a draw. And, and in infinite games, that's not true in general. You can, you can prove using the axiom of choice that there are games for which neither player has a winning strategy. Um, and, uh, but if the game, if the payoff set is particularly simple in its complexity, for example, if it's Burrell as a subset of the product space, uh, you know, there's a natural topology there, the, the product topology. Um, and so if the payoff set is a Burrell set in that topology, then uh, one of the players has a winning strategy. That's called Burrell determinacy as proved by Tony Martin. And uh, and one can prove more that 
I mean, it's really quite amazing because what's true is that if there are these certain kinds of infinite cardinals, these large cardinals, so if there's if there's a proper class of wooden cardinals, then any game that you can define by quantifying over the real numbers and the natural numbers, these are called the projective sets. So it's a kind of a level of complexity in the descriptive set theoretic hierarchy. Any game that you can define like that uh, will be determined. One of the players will have a winning strategy. Um, but there's games coming from the axiom of choice. They won't be definable like that, and they might not have winning strategies. So, so it's quite a lot of deep work. And and uh, and in the games, the yeah, the the number of moves for each player is infinite. In fact, sometimes people even look at games where every move is a real number. So every single move is sort of. Uh, you know, uncountably many possibilities for each single move, but we're going to play infinitely many moves and the complexity and consistency strength of the axiom of determinacy for those kind of games is, is uh, a stronger set theoretic assumption than just assuming determinacy for natural number games. I don't know if that helps or not. But... So I was wondering, it seems like you, you, you kind of restrict uh, there are to be uh, uh, crumbling many moves. Do you know, is there any uh, formulation of uncrumbled moves? Right. So sometimes we consider games that go transfinite, and it's very natural. Um, for example, um, in checkers, this is natural because... Uh, um, you know, if you're playing checkers and nobody's won and the game has gone for omega many steps, infinitely many steps, then uh, you might want to keep playing. If there's still pieces on the board, you could say, well, you know, we're going to say black plays first at every limit stage and then play alternates. So then black plays again. After infinite play, you keep playing. Or this is particularly true with, with stone placing games like hex. I don't know if you know the game of hex, but you play it on a hex grid and red and blue put their colored stones down and you're trying to sort of build a connection from one side to the other on this infinite, we play infinite hex. And so it could be that after Omega many moves, nobody's won yet, but there's still empty squares. And so then you, it makes sense to just keep playing. Why not keep playing? And and uh, and the, the logical considerations of these transfinite length games is, is far more subtle and complicated and confusing, but people do look at them and there are results that are known, but the results aren't as sort of all encompassing as they are in the game length omega case, which is a bit easier. And so the, the theory is just, you know, basically extremely worked out in the length omega case. And in the longer case, things are a little more tentative, but it's still fascinating. And people definitely do look at it. And another thing I noticed is that, uh, so in all the game you mentioned, like the payoff was just one or zero, right? You either win or you're not, right? Yeah. So if there's like real value payoff, I imagine that would also be very interesting. Oh, I see. You mean you want to like playing for money and maybe you get more, a bigger uh, prize if you win in a certain way. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I haven't looked at a lot of those kind of games. I mean, the way I think about it is uh there's really several different subjects that often don't 
touch as much as you would expect. There's, the, there's what's called game theory, which includes the kind of games that you're talking about, but also often frequently includes things like mixed strategies and probabilistic strategies and things like this. It's connected with decision theory and Nash equilibrium and things like this. And all of those ideas are part of the subject of game theory. And then there's a separate subject standing next to that, but with a few connections, but not as many as you would think, which is the, the subject that's called the theory of games. Or sometimes it's also called combinatorial game theory, where they study actual games, you know, like chess and checkers and so on, and Go and and Conway game numbers are maybe part of this a little bit. And and uh, and usually probabilistic strategies are not part of it. And, uh, and 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 often this sort of economical way of thinking isn't so much a part of it because the games that uh, that arise in it aren't usually like that. Although I'm not saying that's not interesting because of course that's very interesting. It just kind of puts you in the other realm of ideas. And then there's a third subject, which I call the logic of games, which is about things like the fundamental theorem of finite games and, and these game values as ordinals, the ordinal game values and the infinitary games determinacy questions are all coming from the logic of games. Of course, all of these subjects are connected in very deep ways, but um, sometimes, sometimes people don't recognize that actually there are they are basically distinct subjects. Some of my favorite proof strategies are, are very game-like. Two examples that come to mind are Oracle-based proofs in cryptography, and then also uh, Epsilon Delta proofs, right? You can think of Epsilon awesome. Delta proofs as a game. Yeah. Um, have you thought at all about, I guess, meta-mathematical implications of the logic of games for, uh, I don't know, other types of proofs we may not have invented yet? And maybe for some context, like in computer science, we've recently had this paper a couple years ago come out that showed that the P versus NP problem will not be resolved by our existing <laughs> mathematical techniques. And so now we're all curious, like, are there other proof strategies we haven't thought of that, you know, we might leverage? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I, this is sort of a tenuous question, but like, are, are there maybe- no, I think you're right on. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, I've made the argument um, that, uh, I mean, any given mathematical statement uh, more complicated mathematical statements have this sort of alternating quantifier structure. And in principle, any mathematical statement in first order logic can be written, you know, with these alternating quantifiers at the front. And any such kind of statement can be thought of as a game, like your epsilon delta thing, right? Because there's the for all player and there's the exist player and the exist player is, you know, the for all player can play anything they want and the exist player, if the thing is true, then the exist player is going to have a winning strategy because they're going to have a move that's going to answer, you know, so uh, any, any move for the for all player. And um, and my um, my view is that the human capacity for understanding these extremely complicated mathematical statements, which is amazing that we can have, have an insight on those very complex statements, arises because of human evolution in a competitive environment in which it was necessary for us to think game theoretically and strategically. So in our distant past, we had to reason, look, if I do, you know, hide in the bushes, then the other guy's going to do something or the bear is going to do something. And then I can, you know, this, this is strategic reasoning that was very important for our survival. And that is exactly the reasoning of alternating quantifiers. And so it's kind of built into us. We have this innate capacity 
for game theoretic reasoning because of that. And that is exactly the same as the capacity for understanding these alternating quantifiers. And that's why we can do mathematics. Uh, I don't know, it's kind of a tenuous argument, but I've made this argument in the past and it's related to some things that you said, right? This is an explanation of why we can understand abstract mathematics because we used to have to think about strategies of uh, interacting with other people and animals. <laughs> I like it. Um, Joel, this has been really terrific. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um, we we often get uh, as many as a few hundred uh, views on YouTube after the fact, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so if people, you know, watch this later on and, and they have questions, like, can they email you? Can they reach out on Twitter? What, what do you recommend? What's the best way? Yeah. So if you just Google my name, you can find me. And uh, also I have a Substack uh, where I'm posting my chapters on the Book of Infinity currently, the, my, all my favorite paradoxes and puzzles of infinity. Um, and uh, I'm, I haven't yet started, but I'm, I have a project in mind. Uh, it's going to start soon on uh, infinite, the Book of Infinite Games, uh, Frivolities of the Gods is what I'm calling it. And I'm going to have accounts of infinite chess and infinite checkers and infinite wordle and all this stuff and many more games uh, uh, will also be appearing on that subset. But yeah, I'm totally happy to answer questions um, by email or just if they post comments on the YouTube thing, then I can answer there also. So. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it. This is a very fun topic and surprisingly yeah. mathematically deep for something that's also pretty fun. <laughs> right. Well, thanks a lot for the opportunity. So nice to meet you all. Okay. Nice to meet you. Adios. Okay. Bye.